Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Swiftson, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 406, this week in space history for December 30th to January 5th. I'm John Mulnix. Happy New Year. 2019 closed out quite the decade for human spaceflight and robotic spaceflight. From the retirement of the space shuttle to commercial crew, it's been a busy decade for humans. For robots, we visited Pluto, discovered water ice on the moon, and retired the Cassini spacecraft. There's way more than that, but those are a few of my highlights. I'll have a retrospective episode for the decade coming up soon. My work schedule has kept me from getting one done until things quieted down with the holiday season. 2020 is going to be an awesome year, and the 20s are going to be an incredible decade. We have the first crewed flight of Crew Dragon and Starliner that are coming up here in the next few months. Beyond that, new telescope missions will launch, and NASA's massive SLS rocket will return astronauts to the moon for the Artemis program. I'm looking forward to sharing and watching history unfold over the next decade with all of you. We're go for making even more space history. On January 1st, 2019, the New Horizons spacecraft passed by Ultima Thule, a distant world located in the Kuiper Belt, which is a region of our solar system beyond Pluto. Check out the show notes for a picture of Ultima Thule. It kind of looks like BB-8 from Star Wars. On January 2nd, 1959, the Soviet Union launched Luna 1 from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. This small spherical probe lifted off on a modified R-7 rocket with a third stage that was capable of sending a payload to the moon. Luna 1 carried science instruments that gathered information on Earth's radiation belt and the environment between Earth and the moon. The spacecraft discovered that the moon has no magnetic field and that solar winds stream through space. The spacecraft was also an experiment in and of itself. There was temperature and pressure sensors installed along the vehicle to study how spaceflight affected the hermetically sealed interior of the spacecraft. On January 3rd, the spacecraft emitted a large amount of sodium gas that was visible from Earth. It was so bright that it looked like a sixth magnitude star, making it easy for astronomers to track the spacecraft. A sixth magnitude star is at the faint end of what can be seen with the naked eye. Luna 1 was meant to impact the moon, but it missed by a couple of thousand miles, placing it in a heliocentric orbit between Earth and Mars. Luna 2 became the first lunar impactor later in 1959, and check out episode 122 if you'd like to hear more about Luna 2 and the unique pennant that was carried on board that spacecraft. The Mars Polar Lander and Deep Space 2 were launched on January 3, 1999. 
The Mars Polar Lander, as its name suggests, was to land near the South Pole of Mars. Deep Space Two was carried with the lander on the cruise stage, and this mission was to have two probes penetrate the surface of Mars at the South Pole, which would have allowed scientists to study the properties of material below the Martian surface. Sadly, the contact with the lander and probes were lost, and the mission was a failure. According to a JPL report, the most probable cause for the loss of the mission was the premature shutdown of the descent engines. It was found that Spurious' touchdown indication could occur during the landing sequence, and it's believed that this is what happened to the Mars Polar Lander. This caused the landing engines on the spacecraft to shut down at about 40 meters above the Martian surface. The spacecraft then fell and impacted the Martian soil at around 22 meters per second, which is a bit faster than the nominal touchdown velocity of 2.4 meters per second. Reading through all of those different failure modes is a humbling experience, and the number of bad things that can happen during the EDL, or entry, descent, and landing phase of a mission, is absolutely staggering. Now, I do have some happier Mars mission history. The Mars Exploration Rover Spirit landed on the surface of Mars on January 4, 2004. Spirit and its twin Opportunity launched just weeks apart in 2003, Spirit landed in the Gusev Crater, with its landing site now called the Columbia Memorial Station. After spending time at its landing site, Spirit had some traveling to do, so the rover set out across the rocky terrain. Spirit captured incredible images of the Martian surface while at the Gusev Crater. Its cameras caught dust devils that spun across the Martian surface, and there's even some GIFs of these dust devils as they spin. Check out the show notes for links to those files. One of my favorite images from Mars, and one that's been a wallpaper on my computer numerous times, is a picture that Spirit captured in 2005. The rover took an incredible picture of our sun as it slipped below the Martian horizon. This Martian sunset is familiar, yet alien. Martian sunsets are unique because of how dust can travel to higher altitudes on Mars than they typically do here on Earth. I'll be linking to that picture in the show notes as well. The original goal for Spirit was it would travel up to one kilometer, or about three quarters of a mile, over a 90-soul mission. Martian days are a little bit longer than they are here on Earth, one day and 40 minutes. A Martian day is called a soul. So the original mission length that was needed to have a successful mission was 90 souls, or about 92 Earth days. Spirit operated for much longer than that. It worked for more than six Earth years, or three Martian years if we're going off how many trips that planet took around the Sun. The rover traveled a total of 4.8 miles, transmitted over 120,000 images back to Earth, and captured the hearts and minds of scientists and the public. On January 4, 2010, NASA announced that the Kepler Space Telescope had discovered five exoplanets, these exoplanets are large, hot Jupiters that have temperatures ranging between 2200 and 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. As NASA puts it, that's hotter than molten lava here on Earth. The Kepler Space Telescope discovers exoplanets by measuring how much the brightness of a star dips when a planet or planets pass in front of their home star. This is called transit photometry, and the Kepler mission is able to conduct accurate enough observations that Earth-sized planets can be detected using this method. 
I'll be linking to more on the Kepler mission in the show notes. January 5th, 1972 is the date of the formal announcement for the final approval of the space shuttle. I'm going to read the statements given by President Nixon and then-NASA Administrator Dr. James C. Fletcher on January 5th, 1972. Before I do that, here's a little historical context. Apollo 16 and 17 still hadn't launched at the time of this announcement, but work on the space shuttle had been underway since the late 1960s. Now, here's President Nixon's statement, followed by Dr. Fletcher's. I have decided today that the United States should proceed at once with the development of an entirely new type of space transportation system designed to help transform the space frontier of the 1970s into familiar territory easily accessible for human endeavor in the 1980s and 90s. This system will center on a space vehicle that can shuttle repeatedly from Earth to orbit and back. It will revolutionize transportation into near space by routinizing it. It will take the astronomical costs out of astronomics. In short, it will go a long way toward delivering the rich benefits of practical space utilization and the valuable spin-offs from space efforts into the daily lives of Americans and all people. The new year of 1972 is a year of conclusion for America's current series of manned flights to the moon. Much is expected from the two remaining Apollo missions. In fact, their scientific results should exceed the return from all the earlier flights together. Thus, they will place a fitting capstone on this vastly successful undertaking. But they also bring us to an important decision point, a point of assessing what our space horizons are as Apollo ends, and determining where we go from here. In the scientific arena, the past decade of experience has taught us that spacecraft are an irreplaceable tool for learning about our near-Earth space environment, the Moon, and the planets, besides being an important aid to our studies of the Sun and stars. In utilizing space to meet needs here on Earth, we have seen the tremendous potential of satellites for international communications and worldwide weather forecasting. We are gaining the capability to use satellites as tools in global monitoring and management of natural resources, in agriculture applications, and in pollution control. We can foresee their use in guiding airliners across the oceans and in bringing TV education to wide areas of the world. However, all these possibilities and countless others with direct and dramatic bearing on human betterment can never be more than fractionally realized so long as every single trip from Earth to orbit remains a matter of special effort and staggering expense. This is why commitment to the Space Shuttle program is the right step for America to take in moving out from our present beachhead in the sky to achieve a real working presence in space, because the Space Shuttle will give us routine access to space by sharply reducing costs in dollars and preparation time. The new system will differ radically from all existing booster systems in that most of this new system will be recovered and used again, and again, up to 100 times. The resulting economies may bring operating costs down to as low as one-tenth of those present launch vehicles. The resulting changes in modes of flight and re-entry will make the rides safer and less demanding for the passengers so that men and women with work to do in space can 
commute aloft without having to spend years in training for the skills and rigors of old-style spaceflight. As scientists and technicians are actually able to accompany their instruments into space, limiting boundaries between our manned and unmanned space programs will disappear. Development of new space applications will be able to proceed much faster. Repair or servicing of satellites in space will become possible, as will the delivery of valuable payloads from orbit back to Earth. The general reliability and versatility which the shuttle system offers seems likely to establish it quickly as the workhorse of our whole space effort, taking the place of all present launch vehicles except the very smallest and very largest. NASA and many aerospace companies have carried out extensive design studies for the shuttle. Congress has reviewed and approved this effort. Preparation is now sufficient for us to commence the actual work of construction with full confidence of success. In order to minimize technical and economic risks, the space agency will continue to take a cautious evolutionary approach in the development of this new system. Even so, by moving ahead at this time, we can have the shuttle in manned flight by 1978 and operational a short time later. It is also significant that this major new national enterprise will engage the best efforts of thousands of highly skilled workers and hundreds of contractor firms over the next several years. The amazing technology explosion that has swept through this country in the years since we ventured into space should remind us that robust activity in the aerospace industry is healthy for everyone, not just in jobs and income, but in the extension of our capabilities in every direction. The continued preeminence of America and American industry in the aerospace field will be an important part of the shuttle's payload. Views of the Earth from space have shown us how small and fragile our home planet truly is. We're learning the imperatives of universal brotherhood and global ecology, learning to think and act as guardians of the one tiny blue and green island in the trackless oceans of the universe. This new program will give more people more access to the liberating perspectives of space, even as it extends our ability to cope with physical challenges of Earth and broadens our opportunities for international cooperation in low-cost, multi-purpose space missions. We must sail sometimes with the wind and sometimes against it, said Oliver Wendell Holmes. But we must sail and not drift, nor lie at anchor. So, with man's epic voyage into space, a voyage the United States of America has led and still shall lead. Now I've got a statement by Dr. Fletcher, the NASA administrator at the time of this announcement. As indicated in the President's statement, the studies by NASA and the aerospace industry of the space shuttle have now reached the point where the decision can be made to proceed into actual development of the space shuttle vehicle. The decision to proceed, which the President has now approved, is consistent with the plans presented to and approved by the Congress in NASA's fiscal year 1972 budget. The decision by the President is a historic step in the nation's space program. It will change the nature of what man can do in space. By the end of this decade, the nation will have the means of getting men and equipment to and from space routinely, on a moment's notice if necessary, and at a small fraction of today's cost. 
This will be done within the framework of a useful total space program of science, exploration, and applications at approximately the present overall level of the space budget. The space shuttle will consist of an aircraft-like orbiter about the size of a DC-9. It will be capable of carrying into orbit and back again to Earth useful payloads of up to 15 feet in diameter by 60 feet long and weighing up to 65,000 pounds. Fuel for the orbiter's liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen engines will be carried in an external tank that will be jettisoned in orbit. The orbiter will be launched by an unmanned booster. The orbiter can operate in space for about a week. The men on board will be able to launch, service, or recover unmanned spacecraft, perform experiments, and other useful operations in Earth orbit, and, farther in the future, resupply with men and equipment space modules which themselves have been brought to space by the space shuttle. When each mission has been completed, the shuttle will return to Earth and land on a runway like an airplane. There are four main reasons why the space shuttle is important, and it's the right step in manned spaceflight and the U.S. space program. 1. The shuttle is the only meaningful new manned space program which can be accomplished on a modest budget. 2. It is needed to make space operations less complex and less costly. 3. It is needed to do useful things. And 4. It will encourage greater international participation in spaceflight. On the basis of today's decision, NASA will proceed as follows. This spring, we will issue a request for prospective contractors. This summer, we will place the space shuttle under contract, and development work will start. Between now and about the end of February, NASA and our contractors will focus their study efforts on technical areas where further detailed information is required before the requests for contractor proposals can be issued. These areas include comparisons of pressure-fed liquid and solid rocket motor options for the booster stage. That was Dr. Fletcher's statement after President Nixon's. I've talked about the legacy of the space shuttle program before. It did make spaceflight somewhat routine, but the economic gains of reusing the shuttle never materialized. I hope you enjoyed those statements from Nixon and Fletcher. I do have one last piece of space history before we leave today. NASA's Lunar Prospector mission launched to Earth's moon on January 6, 1998. This spacecraft, quote, mapped the moon's surface composition and looked for possible deposits of polar ice and more. In March of 1998, the presence of hydrogen at the lunar poles was announced in a scientific press conference. In August of 2018, NASA confirmed the presence of ice at the lunar poles. You can check out the show notes for more information on these announcements. And that's it for this week. I do have a call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.